Seven decades ago, the first television adaptation of Superman arrived. Now, it's time to rock it back to the 1952-1958 series Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves. In this rewatch podcast, my guests and I break down each episode, from its black-and-white crime drama beginnings to the kid-friendly color seasons, as we celebrate one of the most underrated Man of Steel depictions of all time. Welcome to another exciting episode in the Adventures of Superman. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Season 1, Episode 5, The Monkey Mystery, is the editor-in-chief of 13thDimension.com, Dan Greenfield. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Anthony. This is great. I'm looking forward to this. I'm very excited to compare notes generally and specifically with respect to this episode. So like I said, Season 1, Episode 5 aired October 17th, 1952, written by Peter Freeman and Doris Gilbert, directed by Tommy Carr, and our synopsis from the DVD sets, Searching for stolen defense secrets, Clark Kent encounters a brutalized woman, a slain organ grinder, and a monkey dressed as Superman. This is quite the episode. <laughs> you know, when I when I when I when I hear it boiled down to its bare essentials like that, it's just like, yeah, that's exactly what it's about. I mean, that is really what it's about. But it is it it's got a bunch of things going on, and each of those parts are really entertaining. But it's whether they mesh is the issue because I think that the my you know my 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 overall sense of the movie or movie I'm sorry the episode is that it, it's almost like a microcosm of the show itself. It's like it could not decide yet what it wanted to be. And on the one hand, you have this really cool kind of noirish espionage thing going on, and then you've got a monkey running around in a Superman costume. <laughs> Yes. So number, <laughs> well, well, actually, uh, let me just say right, right off, right off the bat here, just as a funny side note, uh, earlier today, before you and I sat down to record this, my family and I went to the Bronx Zoo. We spent the, oh, okay. the, the morning and early afternoon at the zoo yeah. and we had a, a lovely time on this crisp fall day. Uh, but the monkey house was closed and it, oh. it was just, you know, I was, I said, Oh, how, 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 how fitting or, you know, <laughs> right. we're about to discuss the monkey mystery. <laughs> I'm sorry. The monkey house was closed. Yeah, That's one the, of the best parts. The monkey house was closed, but it's so funny because I've kind of been, uh, I've been dumping a little bit on the, uh, the, the synopses from the DVD sets. I felt that for some of the prior episodes, they weren't quite reflective of, right. of what the entire episode was. But yeah, I think this is, this is maybe one of the first ones that I think really hit the nail on the head. It's pretty succinct. As, yeah. It's straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting to hear you give your take and obviously we'll get more into this, but what I was thinking about in terms of my overall impressions, I actually, I liked that juxtaposition of the silly, cute monkey business with the high stakes of the uh, you know, the communist scientist who defected and, and is right. trying to get these, uh, the, the secret formula to the president of the United States through his daughter. Um, I like that, but I do get what you're saying. And that's a really good point that in a lot of ways, it does sort of represent the, that, that tension in the show between being this yeah. more hard boiled crime noir versus, you know, a, a kid's superhero show. But I, but I, I do think it, it all works. It's just kind of an odd choice. Because it's like the episode isn't really clear on what it wants to be, um, but it, but it, they pull it off. Um, and part of it is is it is in 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 my mind it's it's um, George Reeves' performance when he is so intent on finding that monkey as Clark Kent, 
is uh, is one of the uh, one of the great Superman frust. You know, the, the 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 key to Clark Kent in these series is that he's always frustrated because he can't turn to Superman yet. He can't turn to Superman yet. And uh, this uh, episode uh, kind of has a field day with that. Uh, I can't wait till we get to that scene because uh, there there were a few moments performance wise that just so stood out to me and are, are such great examples of why I love George Reeves as Clark and Superman and, and why yeah. I enjoy this show so much. And yes, his growing, you know, palpable frustration and impatience with Jimmy on the phone in that scene <laughs> is hilarious. Like, it's so funny. And like, there, yeah. Jimmy, where are you? <laughs> Yeah. It's like, obviously, you know, you would never hear profanity on that show or from Superman generally, but it's like, you could just imagine the feeling of like, God damn it, Jimmy. Like, where's this monkey? (laughs) Uh, There's, yeah, there's some great moments. And, you know, when we get there, you know, I really want to talk a lot about that scene of Superman on the train when he's talking to the doctor, because in that scene, he plays different facets of the Superman character. He bounces back and forth between them. And it's just like, it's, it's such a great scene. So yeah, there's a lot of great stuff in this episode. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, because, you know, I, we had been emailing about having you on the show and I think I'd given a couple of different episode choices and you gravitated toward this one. And I was just curious, because again, obviously this was before you had rewatched it for this podcast. What was it that right. made you want to do this one? Well, it's a monkey in a Superman costume. <laughs> You know, and and I I am on record as being a big fan of apes in clothes doing human things, or or monkeys in clothes doing human things. That's why I love Planet of the Apes. Now I say this, and I and I hasten to add that I am well aware that in 1951, uh, 52, when this was being made, uh, and I guess 51 because the title card actually says 1951. You know, so I'm, I'm guessing that it was actually filmed then. Um. My, my, you know, I know that animals were not necessarily treated well back in those days uh, in terms of how they performed on camera. So I am, I am fully aware of that, but at the same time, I'm going to take it and I'm just going to take the, the episode on its own terms. And um, yeah, of course, you know, I'm also a big fan of Lancelot Link. I mean, any, anytime you get mon- monkeys or chimps, uh, I'm sold. So that plus the film noirish aspect, like that opening scene especially, are things that show what the, what the series tried to play with, wanted to play with, sort of, couldn't always pull it off, but sometimes really did successfully. So I, I, it was kind of that combination of things is, is what drew me to, to want to do this one. Gotcha. Well, I appreciate you coming along for for this flight, and it's a very cute monkey. It was a lot of fun watching those scenes. But yeah, I mean, it was really interesting to sort of get this, you know, this Cold War espionage yeah. in the show. You know, it was yes, we still had our 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 typical crooks, but right, it was part of this larger this larger plot uh, reflecting you know the the, the real world uh, goings on at the time. So like that was interesting to sort of get, and again, this you know again wild contrast between the monkey. And, uh, and, and these spy games. So yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting one for sure. Yeah. I, I was, I, you know, the, the opening scene, I, I can I jump ahead to talk about the opening scene or, or am I, or am I breaking your format? No, it's quite all right. Well, what we'll do is, um, let's, I just want to say one last thing and then, and then we'll, we'll just get into our scene okay. by scene breakdown. The sure. last thing I just want to say by way of setup is I've talked on the show about how, uh, you know, it was about a couple of years ago that I, I really got into this series. And I essentially binged the first two seasons uh, in a selection of shows from the color years. 
And as I'm sure you know, in the audience, like when you're binging something, a lot of times it just sort of blurs together. Yes. That's one of the reasons I love doing this podcast because I'm going one episode at a time and really making a meal out of each one. And, and they're right. really now cementing in my head. But before this, again, a lot of it blurred together. And so yeah. going into this, I, Monkey Mystery, obviously I remember the monkey part. Like I remember the sillier aspects of the show, but I guess I didn't, the connection between that and uh, you know the secret formula and everything, I, I guess that had kind of gotten a little lost in the shuffle. So I was going into this expecting something a little bit on the lighter side. And then right. again, we open with that exact scene and it's like, oh, right. like, there, this, there's some weight to this. So right. uh, you know, I, I echo everything that you said. Let's take a quick commercial break. And then when we come back, we'll get into our scene by scene breakdown of this. All right, cool. we'll be right back. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. Since 1983, this nine-time Eisner Award nominee uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material available. They pride themselves on their significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. Mail-order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available to anyone, anywhere, via mail-order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals, Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. I was fortunate enough to have my work shown at these festivals, and I found them to be very enjoyable and well-run events. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news and updates about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and currently under new ownership, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State, and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Flat Squirrel Productions is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP, that's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions, to save 10% on your order, and it helps support the show. Thank you. All Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join All Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit AllYeahComics.com and follow All Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Aw Yeah! And we're back. All right, so the monkey mystery. We open with this title card. We're told Central Europe, 1951. Uh, and yes, these episodes were all made in 1951. They sat on the shelf, uh, you know, until 1952, right. until Kellogg's came aboard as a sponsor right, and they started right, airing. Right, right. Uh, and we see these newspaper headlines, right, about this scientist, Maleska, how he's now an enemy of the state. And then we spend a good bit of time with uh, Jan Maleska and his daughter, Maria, in this cave as they're being hunted, hunted by soldiers and 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 dogs. 
And, you know, we're with them for a while and, you know, we're in another country. These are unfamiliar characters. I found it surprisingly compelling. What was your, your impression oh, of the scene? I, I think it's a great start. And I remember the first time I saw it also because I only, like you, really binged the show uh, within the last few years. I grew up, as we've established many times over, but if you're a first-time listener, I am a big Batman fan. And and it, it was all rooted in the 1966 TV show. Superman was on at that time you know, when I was watching it in syndication in the early seventies, but it was always just there for me for whatever reason. It never, I was never found it as compelling. So I never really watched or sat and watched the whole series until a few years ago. And when I did, I became addicted and fell in love with the show and really began to understand what made it so great and, and why it still to this day has a very loyal audience. Um, And I do remember the first time I saw this episode and that opening was like, wow, this is, this is bigger. You know, this is a, this isn't a haunted lighthouse. You know, this is, this is world stakes. You know, this is a, you know, you, you, it's, it's scary. It's dramatic. It's tense. Um, It feels almost like you're watching the beginning of a noir film of that same era post, you know, cold war, post-war story. And in another story, it would be about the girl and make her making her way to the United States. But here it's, you know, that it's, it's the MacGuffin basically. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very grim opening. It's the stakes are clearly very high. It's interesting how they don't name the country. They make it an unnamed central European country that is clearly under the Soviet thumb. Um, and, uh, but they make it really clear here, you got to take this to the president of the United States. They, they all, they, they, they make, they go right to the top with who they need to get this to. So they're telling little kids in that sense, oh, only the president can know. And this, this must be very important. And, um, yeah, I, I think it, uh, I think it works really, really well and surprisingly moving when this poor girl has to leave her father behind to be killed because she knows he's going to be killed. And so does he. And yet they still make that choice, that kind of brave choice. Yeah. I mean, it really pulls you in, uh, you know, through, through the, through that initial scene and, and this tearful goodbye. And like you said, you know, he's entrusting her with this secret formula, uh, that, you know, can, you know, again, play, play a large role, uh, in, in the, the current state of the world. You know, we get a little bit more, a little more clarity later on. It seems to be this, this defense against, uh, uh, atomic weapons. We don't know exactly what that, what that would work, what that would entail, but, uh, again, he he uh, hides it in this locket uh, that he gives her. And yeah, like the, you said, the, the formula I, 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 the formula is really the instructions to duck and cover. That's that's what I've figured out. That the yeah, that must have been what the formula was because there is no defense against nuclear weapons except for other yeah. weapons. But I but I uh, uh, and even then, as we know. Uh, but I digress. Um, yeah, I mean, it's you get into you know the stakes are very high, but it's also brutal. I mean, it's not just moving when she has to leave and he's hiding in the cave. They actually show him getting beaten by the guards or basically tortured. I mean, it's, whipped. He gets yeah, whipped. He gets whipped. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and, you know, of course he dies off screen. But I'm thinking this is 1952 TV. It's just, you know, very interesting that they show this on what was ostensibly a kid's show. As has been said, and, and we'll continue to talk about as we make our way through this series, obviously the first two seasons, and the first season in particular, was a lot darker and grittier yes. than the rest of the show would become, especially right. when we get to the color years. But right. uh, even but like even within that context, it still feels like a lot to show this guy yes. getting getting whipped. Yeah. You know, there are other episodes coming up where you see someone get 
shot and killed. Mm-hmm. But the whipping was, and look, it's not it's not an extended sequence, but still, even yeah. just for those few seconds, it, it definitely, uh, you know, it, it's uh, again, it paints a very grim picture. Yeah, it's unsettling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so then we get this montage of Maria, you know, traveling to America, uh, and then we cut to this officer, right, who is uh, getting information about. Uh, you know, where she's heading and he goes to this filing cabinet and he pulls out contact information for some operative Harold Crane in Metropolis. Right. Right. And tells this person to, you know, get this information to him to intercept uh, Maria and get the, uh, and, and get the locket. Uh, so that's our basic setup uh, to this episode. And from there we go to this, <laughs> this kindly uh, friendly organ grinder uh, and his monkey on the streets of Metropolis performing for the children, putting on a very fun show. And of course, Lois and Clark, uh, come upon them, and uh, the the monkey pulls out a fortune to give to Lois. I have to say, uh, I really liked seeing Lois and Clark in this scene um, throughout, but especially at the beginning, because you know we always talk about Phyllis Coates, and I say it every episode, but I I love her as Lois. She is my preferred Lois on this show. I think she's great. I do not understand why why some people just turn their nose up at Phyllis Coates. I think she was terrific in the role. And I think she gets an unfair sort of, and, and I'm not sure why that is. I mean, I, she's definitely different than Noel Neal, but um, I think she she does a, a perfectly fine job. Um, she's a lot, uh, um, you know, uh, she's a lot more capable than they showed Lois later being. She's she's competitive. She's snarky. She's a fun character. I really like her. As do I. And what I was going to say is like one of the reasons why I, I often gravitate towards her version of the character is she's so tough. Like this is the yeah. very, very tough as nails lowest. But in yeah. this scene, especially at the beginning, you see a, a very warm, soft side to both her and Clark. Um, not, yeah. not that you don't in other instances, but I, and I enjoyed seeing, uh, you know, how they were taking in this scene of the organ grinder right. and the kids. And then, you know, the little banter, like when she opens up the, you know, uh, the piece of paper and Clark wants right. to know what her, what her fortune is and she doesn't want to tell him and they have their little back right. and forth. And then of course we see what it is, right? right. It's information. It's a, a message that is meant to be delivered to these operatives in Metropolis uh, about how uh, Maria Maleska's plane uh, was rerouted and now she's getting on the Washington limited train to DC. Right. Uh, so Lois sees this and, knows enough to know that this is a, a big tip that she's going to follow, but of course right. doesn't clue Clark in because right. they're rival reporters. Uh, so she sent right. him to cover a trial uh, that they were supposed to cover together uh, on his own. Yeah. The, what I just taking from the top of that, of the, of the scene, what I, in addition to the montage, one of the things that I really love is the stock footage of Manhattan uh, at that time. I, I, I am a sucker for that in any time, whether I see that in movies, television, whatever, is that kind of stock footage that was taken. And it firmly establishes uh, that Metropolis is a stand in for New York. Um, and it also firmly establishes that Metropolis is on the East Coast. Now, anybody who, who, who's been, you know, has been a Superman fan as long as I am, I, I hold these things to be self-evident. But the, the but the thing is, is that the show itself later kind of sort of played fast and loose with that and sort of suggested that it was in California, that it was a stand in for Los Angeles. And of course, as we know, the the a lot of the stock footage that they use from the jump, I mean, the, the, the Daily Planet um, building is the you know, is the what the city hall in Los Angeles. And so, I mean, they, they're definitely playing around. But when they are establishing the, the establishing shot of Metropolis, I appreciate the fact that it was over Manhattan. So I was like, you know, go team. But um, 
but yeah, the, you, you, you get the organ grinder, you get the, 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 the monkey in a Superman costume and it's a great Superman costume. The logo is just like, is just like George Reeves, both on the front and the back. They didn't scrimp whoever the, whoever the costume designer was, uh, you know, took the time to make an exact duplicate and smaller for the monkey, which is great. Um, but it's also the really terrible acting kids who are in the scene that also cracked me up. There's this one girl and she's got kind of a, kind of a, a bob cut and she's just jumping around. Like she's like, you know, had too much sugar cereal. You know, she's just, she like, she is on it. She's just up and down and up and down and clapping. And she's and the others are, you know, just they're acting like kids, but she's, she's, she's all in. So I, I appreciated how much she loved the monkey because I got to tell you that if I were in her shoes, I would have acted exactly the you know same way. If I saw a monkey like that with a Superman costume Playing with symbols. I, what am I going to? I'm, I'm like I'm. I'm going to melt into a, in, into pudding. Yeah. You, you don't. You can't want more out of life than that. It's true. Yeah. I mean, uh, and you know, look, especially seventy years ago, there's less entertainment to be had. So you know, right. You, so a monkey in a Superman suit, man, you might as well be going to the Super Bowl. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much on par with the halftime shows at the time. But no, seriously, I, I I do I do I do love the monkey, and I love the kids. And, and you're right, the the whole warmth between you know, uh, um, Clark and Lois as they just kind of like happen upon the scene. And then their, their banter as she, you know, tells, well, no, I'm going to go meet my, uh, my, uh, my millionaire, my oil millionaire, uh, what was it by the name of Harry or whatever it was going to be, or Harvey, yeah, Harvey that she had to go find and she leaves him in the dirt. Yeah. It's what's funny. Well, I was thinking about this with the, with respect to the monkey again, you know, these episodes didn't air in the order in which they were produced. And, and either way, it's not like this show was really built to, necessarily explore how the world is receiving Superman, right? We'll, we'll get right. that in, in more modern stories, but it right. is just kind of interesting <clears throat> because, uh, you know, Haunted Lighthouse aired second, right? right? And that doesn't quite line up because like he lands on the Coast Guard ship and they instantly know like it's Superman, but you know, again, right. it's only the second episode that's aired. Um, <clears throat> and there's clearly, you know, a relationship that's been developed between Superman and Jimmy that we hadn't seen, you know, all that stuff. Um, and then in, in, uh, the case of the talkative dummy, when, when Superman, uh, intercepts the bad guys at the end, <clears throat> one of them is like, who are you? Right. You know? So it's like the word hasn't reached everyone yet, but now here we are. And there's, there's a monkey in this costume. It's just interesting yeah. to see these little glimpses of how Superman is sort of permeating the world. These little flashes that we get of it. I thought, I thought that was cool. Well, the show overall had only a very loose continuity. Yeah. It, 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 it really didn't adhere, um, I mean, they, they, there were certain characters that would, there were recurring characters and there were some, you know, there was one of the things was the reference at one point when kryptonite is finally introduced onto the show. And then later when the kryptonite plays a factor in an episode, they actually have to address the fact of how they'd gotten rid of the kryptonite in the last episode or the, the, the last episode that it appeared, as opposed to just assuming that it was another piece of kryptonite. And I actually appreciated that because it's, it's, it's true that in, in mid-century America, the, other than table salt, the second most common element found in the United States was kryptonite um, because everybody had it in the 50s uh, in comic books and in the 60s. Kryptonite was everywhere. I mean, it, and easy to synthesize, amazingly easy to turn it into liquid, to turn it into a ray gun, to, to, to build people out of it. It's a, it's a remarkable thing it's, it's, is, is kryptonite and just how easy it is to find. <laughs> very, very true. And, <clears throat> 
as you were saying that, yeah, I was thinking, I know one of the, the color season episodes actually does reference the yeah. asteroid that Superman destroys in Panic yeah. in the Sky. And it's like, yeah, those references yeah. between episodes were, were few and far between. But every now and then you yeah. would get something like that. And that was yeah. that's one of the things I look forward to as I go about my rewatch and, and watching the episodes that I haven't seen yet uh, to, to kind of keep track of those when they pop up. Yeah. Also, I'll just say real quick with the location of, of Metropolis, you know, and anyone who's been listening to me for any period of time knows that my heart is always with the Smallville television show. I will say it was a little tough to get on board with the idea of Metropolis, Kansas. Yeah, I, I never bought that. That it just it just never worked for me. I was like, and and with his with his, I mean, I know they had to do that, so they had to find a way to get all every single one of the 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 side characters also to Metropolis. That they had to they had to find a way. But yes, and 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 since and I can say this about Kansas because my wife is from there. I've been there many, many times. I love Kansas city. Um, and, uh, um, which of course is partial. Well, there's two Kansas cities, but they're, they're contiguous, uh, but you know, across the two States, Kansas and Missouri. And I, I enjoy that part of the country, especially the state. And, um, but I never bought the idea of Metropolis, Kansas. I, I just, I know I can't buy this. Some people say it's a, supposed to be a stand in for like Chicago. I'm like, no, 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 no. Metropolis is New York. Gotham City is New York. Deal with it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Like I said, for as much as I love the show, that was always a little tough. And then, you know, you talk about shifting locations. You know, at the beginning of Smallville, right. it was like hours away. Right. right. It was, you know, it wasn't like they yeah. were just hopping over. And then by the yeah. end of the series, it was. It was practically a suburb. It was just a suburb. Metropolis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> uh, so as Lois is getting in her car and driving away, the organ grinder runs after her. Like he realizes that she took this message that his monkey was supposed to deliver. Now, in an upcoming scene, we'll actually see the procedure where he hands the, the paper to the monkey and the monkey climbs up the, uh, the, 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 the drain pipe. pipe. Yeah. Right. And goes into Harold Crane. This, that's the operative into his office. I'm fascinated. You know, we don't get this story in the episode, but I'm fascinated by the backstory here. Like how did this, <laughs> how did this organ grinder get mixed up in this espionage game? And what's fascinating to me is, you know, <laughs> why would he be part of this? But look, you know, we, it, it could be a money thing. It, it could be anything. Right. But I'm more baffled. Why? Like, why would they utilize this person grinder. in particular? Yeah. 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 That part, there's, there's a few, there's a few aspects of the whole organ grinder, espionage, monkey triangle there that, that, that doesn't always line up properly. Uh, throughout the movie uh, or episode, they're like short. See, I, I know, keep saying movies, right? Yeah, I keep saying like movie short because movies. they are filmed like movies. Yes, and and that's and that's why I keep thinking of them in those terms. Um, but yeah, the, the this episode, you know, when there are there are, and, and I don't even want to belabor, but there are a few times when it's like that doesn't really make sense. There's some plot hole aspects, not only just the fact that the organ grinder. And clearly the organ grinder is not like a true believer who's all in you. you it's, I, I at least inferred that he somehow had been forced to do this or was somehow um, maybe indebted. I don't know. Like you said, they don't explain it, but you don't get the sense that he's a bad guy. You just get a sense that he's this poor guy who's kind of stuck in the middle somehow. And, and then, and then again, the monkey, the monkey, you know, aspect starts to turn when you realize that the monkey is also being used by the, by the communists, you know, the, the, 
the, you know, the, the evil Soviets as well, um, you know, because he's pressed into service to deliver that message. Yeah, it's it's the great untold story of this episode. Because yeah, like that's the thing. You don't. Get, it's not like this is a all a, a facade. That would have been a great twist if, like, right. you know, he's on the street and he's got the Italian accent and he's a kindly right. and everything. And then all of a sudden, like, he goes into that alley and like he straightens up and his voice changes and it's like, That'd oh, this great. Is, that would have yes, been great because nobody would ever expect an organ grinder to be a an espionage mastermind. Exactly. So uh, I'm totally down for that. <laughs> between between the scenes, that's uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this like a side note. I, uh, I, I mentioned this on the show and I know, you know, I'm a huge Honeymooners fan. And one of the things that I always thought would, th- I thought would be an interesting thing to do, like a podcast in a podcast or otherwise is like, what happens after some of these episodes? Cause like some of the Honeymooners episodes, I don't know if, if you're a fan, if you're, or, or I'm a fan, but I'm not, I can't say I'm knowledgeable enough to, but yeah, but every I mean, I've liked what I've watched, but I, I don't, I don't, there, there are Honeymooners super fans out there just like they're super fans for anything. And I'm not even close to being within sniffing distance of something like that league. Fair enough. But it's just like most of the episodes end and we're more or less at the status quo. But then there are other episodes where it's like it's ended and Ralph has quit his job and or or whatever the case may be, or they've lost all their minds. Like, well, what would happen next? Like, it feels like we're leaving them in a real tough spot. Anyway, uh, it's always fun to speculate about that stuff. But from from that, the scene with the organ grinder chasing after Lois on the street, we go to the Daily Planet, Lois's office. Uh, Jimmy comes in, Lois is, is preparing to leave. We find out she's going to fly to Baltimore and I'm going to lay this out because this will play into the scene with Perry that's coming up and the travel yes. plans and everything. I love yeah. that bit. Uh, so she's going to fly to Baltimore and then get on uh, the Washington limited train, right, right? To try to catch up with Maria Maleska. So quick scene between Lois and Jimmy. I liked where she's like, you better call me a cab. And he's like, it's already downstairs waiting. It's like, you know, especially in the beginning, Jim was, was definitely more capable and, oh, yeah. and not just the joke that he would become as, as the seasons right. uh, wore on. So I thought that was a, just a you know, nice, nice little scene between the two of them. He even has a look of pride on his face. Yes. Which you see, you know, when he's like, it's already waiting for you. Like he, he, he was pleased that he had anticipated her needs. And, um, and it's, you know, again, they're not entirely, you know, they, they, they never really fully define exactly what Jimmy's role is, basically, because sometimes he's a photographer and sometimes he's sort of, like a, a helper. Sometimes he's a reporter. They just kind of use him as, as needed. Um, but I like how here he's sort of her, he's sort of her Alfred, you know, making sure that she's got everything that she needs to go off on her adventure. And he's very pleased with that. And, and then again, where he's pressing her, like, where did you get the tip? Where did you get the tip? And she tells him the truth. I got it from a monkey. Yeah. Which of course is to him is like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> And from there, we go to the scene that we were just talking about, where we see the organ grinder uh, give a piece of paper to the monkey. We see him climb up, go into Harold Crane's office, deliver it to him, and basically says, like, I lost the original message, uh, but, you know, this is the train that you need to to follow. And- By the way, his the character's re- his name is Harold Crane, but it's not, because really he was an undercover operative. He's, he's Howard Stark, <laughs> if you... <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah. Tell me he wasn't like a dead ringer for Howard Stark. Yeah, I can't argue that one. No, I mean, it's just like, well, here we go. This is this is the this is the Marvel. This is the the the, the Marvel, the MCU DCAU crossover that you never knew happened <laughs> where Superman actually met an undercover Tony uh, uh, Howard Stark. So there I'm sticking with that. It is pretty uncanny. Uh, I'm on board with that. Uh, Howard Stark with a cigarette holder. Yeah. I was like what an affectation to have a cigarette <laughs> hold. I was like, how weird is that? I mean, and then it, it got me thinking, 
how often did people actually have cigarette holders in 1951? I mean, it, it always struck me as just like, you know, the wealthy, you know, or femme fatales used it, but not like just some dude in an office with a, you know, I mean, I know they were trying to make him slick and everything, but it just seems strange to me. But nevertheless, I digress. What I don't like about this is the way we know immediately that this guy's a bad guy is because he's about to harm Peppy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. He's, 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 he's like, he's ready to kill that thing the minute he sees it. I'm like, what, what is this? Yeah, that was that even, even for the, the bad guy of the piece, man, that felt like an overreaction. It's like, what the hell? It's not the monkey's fault. (laughs) Yeah, I know that was, that was like, whoa, like slow your roll. And I mean, thankfully he does, but it's just like, why'd that be your gut reaction? I know really. It's like, Hey, there's a monkey in my window dressed in a Superman suit. I guess I have to kill it. That doesn't, you know, I I would, I mean, he knows, obviously knows who the monkey is. He knows the monkey's of use to him. So why would he want to kill him for one thing? And then even if, even if he never saw that monkey before, if a monkey dressed in a Superman, dressed like Superman comes climbing into your office window, my first reaction is not to kill it. My first reaction is what the fuck? (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. No, I know. And, you know, it's like. As the as the scene unfolds, he'll you know he'll ultimately calm down, and then he'll direct right. his underling Max to kill the organ yeah. grinder because again, clearly the organ grinder read the message and the, it, Max, the stereotypical Superman, Adventures of Superman, dumb thug. There is always the smart thug and always the dumb thug. So yeah, yes. But look, going back to what we were saying about the untold stories of this episode, you know, you have to wonder within this international espionage ring. Like maybe it come it came up in one of the meetings that Harold Crane was like, listen, I came up with this message delivery system. We're going to use this organ grinder and monkey. Everyone's like, no, that's a terrible idea. Like you can't. And like, you know, maybe he really went out on a limb with this. And now he sees that it's falling apart and he's like, damn it. Like they were right. So he's like, I just have to cut all ties. I mean, it's like, it's like the scene in, it's the scene in, um, in in Thunderball, which was of course parodied in Austin Powers, where where Spectre is meeting, and they've got all of them lined up at the gigantic uh, conference table, and and Blofeld gets pissed off at one of them, and so he presses the button and, and electrocutes him in his seat. You imagine him sitting there, you're know, going, uh, number one, uh, yes, our plan is proceeding with uh, the monkey. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> Listen, as good as this episode was, I think there's an even better episode that that we didn't get to see because there's some really fun stuff that you could do here. It's so true. I love it. And, and of course, we're never, ever, ever given any kind of explanation as to why he's wearing a Superman outfit to begin with. It's, yeah. it's, it has nothing to do with the plot. There's no explanation other than the, again, you infer that because Superman is popular in Metropolis – an organ grinder would say to himself, hey, idea, I'm putting Peppy in a Superman suit. I'm going to I'm going to rack up the tips. And, you know, I, I think he's probably right about that. Yes. Yeah, yeah that that yeah, that I think tracks. Uh, I think it certainly enhanced his act. Yes, um, definitely. You know, but uh, yeah, crazy. Yeah. So but then but then but then Peppy gets the banana. Yeah, he's the banana. He gets the banana. And I'm telling you, man, I could watch that on an endless loop for three hours. Right. Just watching him just because, and, and I like how this, this bastard 
who who's who's willing to kill him just happens to have a a pre-opened banana in his drawer. So he definitely was expecting him to come by at some point. So something, you know, again, a little bit of a plot hole, but then he hands the, the, the banana to him and oh, just watching him eat that banana. Random aside, but uh, uh, in, in my prior job, uh, I, I was in admissions at, at the law school where I work. And um, so, you know, routinely have meetings with prospective students and their parents. And uh, a banana was one of my go-to snacks of choice. So <laughs> many a time I would have a banana on my desk. What? Well, but one time someone, a father came in and had a severe allergic reaction to just the, the, the smell of it. Just it was it's being there. Just wow. it's being there. Yeah, it was crazy. I felt so bad. I mean, he was okay, but it was, uh, you know, th- potentially very dangerous to just have that. I w- like out of all of the things, it's not wow. like I had like, you know, nuts or something like that. It was just right. this banana. Yeah. So that's, that's a banana story. Yeah, but in this case, uh, it, it ended up uh, as at least uh, an olive branch of sorts to Pepe after almost yeah. killing him. Yeah. After this, we make our way to the offices of one Perry White, who is irate at these travel plans that Lois made on a tip from a monkey, right? So we got classic Perry, great Caesar's ghost, no more unapproved travel expenses. My favorite part of this scene is when he sticks his finger at Clark and he goes, and that goes for you too. And I love the way Reeves plays it because he's yeah. just like, he just looks down at it and like, you know, what's going through his head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And all, you know, also uh, the way that he, and then he spins on Jimmy. He says, and paste that in your hat too, which A, I've got to find a way to use that. Paste that in your hat too, because that is a great admonishment that speaks 1950s. Paste that in your hat. I love that. That's fantastic. But it's also, I have to say, as someone who, uh, who has uh, uh, been in the world of uh, journalism for more than uh, three decades, is that Perry's meltdown was the most true-to-life aspect of newsroom life than anything else I've ever seen on this show. The editor going off about un- un- unapproved travel expenses is a very real thing. And now I'm on the other side of that. I am off with the guy. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean they didn't get approval before they went? <laughs> I'm sitting there watching. I'm like, oh, my God, I've, I've lived this scene. It is very true. And I, and I thought to myself, you know what? Perry's right. Perry's absolutely right. It's she true. should not be running off like that. It is a major, major uh, a, a faux pas for a reporter to just up and go someplace without talking to the editor first. So good on you, Perry. <laughs> Got to have standards. And then Clark does the and, exact and same thing. Yeah. But that Clark does the exact same thing. He's just like, Oh, I got to go too. <laughs> yeah, I know. It just starts running off. Of course we know Superman's not going to cost a damn thing, yes. which makes, you know, that's another aspect uh-huh. is when he put in for his expenses, how did he, how did he, you know, how did he concoct? Cause now, now think about this now. Because now I'm really now I'm off to the races. How did he ever? How did he ever uh, put in for the expenses for all the airfare that he never used? What did he do with the money? I'm going to say he gave it to charity because it's Superman. Yes, I suppose that's true. But that is a good question. And so I've not been in the position of approving. But going back to that job and admissions, I did a lot of travel for recruiting purposes. Right. And so sure. I've been on the side of having to submit 
expenses and have right. receipts for everything. So, sure. uh, yeah, so that part did ring true. Um, you know, even if I haven't been on the side of, of you know, being frustrated at, uh, at an employee's, uh, abuses of the system, but yeah, like I definitely, <laughs> I definitely, uh, you know, could identify with that. And, you know, of course, over the course of the scene, they figure out, um, what Lois is doing and, and, and what this is all about. But, uh, yeah, fun scene with, uh, with, there's some really good Perry stuff in, in this episode. That, I you love, know, I, you know, I, he is actually my favorite John Hamilton. <clears throat> it, it's just come down to the fact that he is my favorite Perry white. Okay. I yeah. love him. I think he was great. He just, just, just the, 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 the zero to 60 rage boiling just below the surface, the, the, the moral certainty of everything that he does it's just he's he's he you know it's his he can unlike J. Jonah Jameson he can back up his swagger with performance J. J. Jonah Jameson was a buffoon but Perry White is not a buffoon and sometimes he's a real jerk sometimes he's not a nice guy and that's not cool he's especially abusive to Jimmy who doesn't deserve it but it, it, but the performance and the overall package of this version of Perry White just cracks me up. And maybe it's because the older I get, the more I identify with him. You know, he's like old man yells at clouds. Yeah, I, it's, it's like I, there's a lot that I do like about this version. And I think it certainly works in the context of the show. I don't I don't dislike the John Hamilton Perry. My my heart ultimately is with Lane Smith from Lois and Clark. And that was a far, oh, well, sure. yeah. far warmer, gentler, paternal version of the character. Right. But still, you know, had that gruffness. I, I thought that was a, a good blend where I get annoyed with this Perry on Adventures of Superman. And, and later in this episode is a, a good example of it where Clark has this hunch to track down the monkey. Right. And Perry is just he's adamant. He's like, I mean, he, he, he does allow Clark to actually follow this thread. So I do appreciate that. But he's right. so adamant, like no, nothing will come of this. And it's just. But, but that is that yeah. is a very that is actually a very true to life the creative tension between editors and reporters. The reporters sometimes want to go down rabbit holes and editors are like, I, I just said that this one just ran off to Baltimore on her own. <laughs> what's his, what's with the monkey? What can a monkey tell us? Can't even talk. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. And I got what my reporter. Number one flies out of town without telling me. And I got reporter. Number two is obsessed with a monkey. Think about that for a second. And you're going to start to sympathize with Perry. He's, he's basically running a nut house because a newsroom is an asylum. So he's got Jimmy, who is constantly a thorn in his side. He's got Clark, who's constantly disappearing on the job. And he's got Lois, who just does whatever she wants. I don't blame Perry at all. Perry, Perry, Perry's misunderstood. You know what? I'm going to keep that in mind as, my, <laughs> as I may. Oh, no, honestly, honestly. <laughs> true i mean i think you know a healthy dose of skepticism right yeah. I, I, yeah. it certainly makes sense uh I, I guess i always just think of it in terms of like and i know we're still early in the series but with the yeah. with these characters generally like everything that they've been through i would want more benefit of the doubt from perry you know towards yeah. these in particular but i totally get what you're saying and i will keep that in mind and yeah. one of the things i can't wait this is deep into the season i think it's the crime wave episode the episode with all of the um sure. scenes from from previous episodes pre yeah crime wave but we find out via narration in that episode that Perry used to be the mayor. The mayor of, of Metropolis, which is one of the weirdest things that was tacked onto the show. <laughs> and I don't think they, I think they maybe went back to it once again, but it was like, what does that add? It adds nothing. And I, and it just was such a strange 
thing for them to, to have as part of this. But uh, yeah, I, I remember that. I thought that's that. I remember even when I heard that, I played it back. I said, did I hear that right? He's the former mayor since when? And what is, well, anyway, but back to Perry here. And you're, you're right. He's like, he's the, the, when what made that such a true to life scene is that Perry knows this in, in his heart of hearts. He knows this is not going to work. He does it. The, 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 the odds are low. <clears throat> and as a, as an editor, like in a lot of, you know, positions of authority, your, your job is, and I know we're overthinking this, but I'm, I, you know, uh, bear with me here is that you, your, your, your entire approach is risk versus reward. How much time and effort do you have to put into something? And is it going to pay off? Now think about it. Clark with the monkey. Let's go back to the monkey now. Let's not forget why we're here. The monkey aspect of it. If I were Perry, I'd also be like, what are you out of your mind? How is the monkey a lead? The monkey's probably dead in an alley somewhere or jumped into the water after its master or whatever, but it's a monkey. What, what possible, what possible use, but he still signs off on it because he does trust Clark. He's like, all right, I don't think this is going to do anything, but have at it. So Clark is all excited. goes off about the monkey. And then this is the part that I just blows me away is that they get to broadcast this all over Metropolis. Clark Kent and the police want the monkey. Yeah. So let Clark Kent or the police know if you see the monkey. Yes. Well, you know what? And in fairness here, you know, we've seen the procedure of the monkey delivering the message. Clark, I don't think knows enough at that. I mean, that is a, that is a long it's shot a at huge, that point based on what he knows. Exactly. That, that was the part that I was saying is that that's where the show the first half of the episode, it, it, it really does, um, you know, it, it, everything tracks. It's weird to get the monkey involved, but at this point, once Clark becomes obsessed with the monkey, I thought to myself, that doesn't really hold together because why would he have any idea that the monkey would have anything to do with this? So that's the, that's to me where the, where the, the, the thread of the episode breaks, but it doesn't matter. I'm willing to just shrug it off, roll with it. Because let's not, again, let's not forget that this is about spies and monkeys and Superman costumes. Yes. Well, so re- returning to our, our spy games here. So Clark, you know, races out of Perry's office. We get the stock footage of Clark in his hat, which he didn't have in the prior scene, of course, running yeah. into the, the storage closet. Yes. Uh, and then we cut to Lois on the train. She finds uh, Maria Maleska's train car. Maria is uh, unconscious, bloodied yeah, head. She's got blo- bloody head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't see the hit, but it's the, it's, again, yeah, it's graphic for, for, yeah. Yeah. And then we see Lois get hit or, I mean, I think most of the, well, head, she gets grabbed, yeah. but it's, it's like off, off. Yeah. You know, you know, she's about to get whacked in the head. Yes. And then uh, we have uh, Superman fly in. I really, I was very impressed and pleasantly surprised that they actually took the time to show him landing on the train on the top of the train i agree i had the same thought that was a nice they didn't touch. have to do that no they didn't have to do that at all but it was it, i'm glad they filmed it it's an attention to detail it you know because remember really these shows are about clark kent and lois lane and jimmy olsen and, and perry and and superman is the you know we all know he's coming but he's still kind of the deus ex machina of any story that he that he ends up in he comes in, we get to see him maybe twice, once in the beginning, once at the end. And and so getting to see him here and him walking on the train and landing, I was like, this is great. I'm glad they took the time to do this because it just helps to deepen the show. It helps to, 
It helps to push Superman as someone of great ability, reminds you that he's a superhero, does all of that. And it make it just adds that extra texture that reminds you that you're watching a Superman show. And it's not just any old show. Well said. And and like I said before, you know, not remembering all of the beats of, of each episode, you know, that was one of those things. I was not expecting that scene. As a, as I as you see right. the stock footage of him starting to descend, I'm like, okay, and then he'll yeah. be inside the train. And then when I saw him land, I was like, right on. Like they really, I know. you know. Yeah. Yeah, that was cool. So he goes inside, he, you know, he finds Lois and Maria, he calls for the porter to get a doctor. Uh, and then we get uh, really what for me was my favorite scene of this episode because he's talking to the doctor uh, about yeah. Maria's injuries and everything. And he says, and I mean, you just, you feel the anger here. He's like, I'd like to find the man that did this. Yeah. And it's, that's golden age Superman. That's right golden there. age Superman. That's what I, I like that. And, but what, what really makes this, this scene sing to me is that moments later, as Maria starts to wake up, he just does a complete turn. Right. And he yeah. kneels beside her. And he says, I'm Superman. I'm your friend. Yeah. And he's just so calm and tender and warm and friendly. Yeah. And yeah. it just like that, that turn. And, and again, just seeing the different facets of the character in that one scene. I loved it. it it's, it's even, it's even um, foreshadowed just before he calls the porter. When he, he's looking at Lois, he's helping Lois and he sees Maria and he actually stops and he pets her head. Just as this very gentle, and remember again, like we just saw him fly in and land on a moving train, and now he's just being gentle and kind. And he calls for the porter, get me the doctor. The doctor comes back, and like you say, he's he's at tor- at turns angry about someone who would do this to them, and also deeply concerned. You know, kind of take her to a hospital. What can I? You know, and it's the doctor who has, can I question it? He's so, he's so, um, um, he's also deferential to the doctor. You know, he doesn't try to push it. He's like, can I talk to her? Yes, you can talk to her, but not for him. Okay. He does. And then the doctor's like, mm, you better stop. And I was like, okay. He's, he's not like, you know, that's, we've seen versions of that scene in so many different iterations over the years in different contexts. But here is just the fact that you're right. He's so gentle, but yet. I also love the button that, that they, they put on the scene where he's like, okay, you take care of them. Or he says, I'll take care of them. The doctor does. You go get that locket. And even the way the doctor says it, you know, it's, a, it's there, there, there's like a, his, vo- his voice firms up and it's like, I'm with you, Superman. And the Superman goes off to be the adventurer. And it's just great. It's a subtle but it, it's such a winning scene. You're right. Plus it's got old fashioned trains and you get, you get an old fashioned, you know, compartment train. I'm, I'm just immediately going to be tickled by that. anyway. That's the thing. I, you know, I know when we get to the color years, it's, it's far more the warm paternal Superman. Yeah. What I like here is that you get that, but you do also get that golden age edge oh, and, yeah. and toughness. Yeah. The ass kicker. Yeah. And you know, this will again be a theme throughout this podcast, but I feel like that it, this scene just shows that essence, that that ineffable quality that yeah. Reeves had, where again, this had nothing to do with effects or cost or anything. Right. It was just the way he spoke and carried himself that it just yeah. made you feel that. Like it made you feel like he was gonna go kick some ass. And it oh, also yeah. and it also he made was, you feel like angry. she was in good hands. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yep. Perfect. I love it. Then we get a, a humorous scene uh, after this where as Clark uh, he's on the phone to Perry. <laughs> he's yeah. like, I'm going to look around some more. He's like, you are. He's like, oh, I need yeah. Superman. Like, I need Superman. <laughs> I'm like, oh, come on. 
<laughs> but my favorite part of this exchange uh, when he's on the phone with Perry is he starts to give Perry orders. He's like, have Henderson find the organ grinder and we should probably have some of our staff do that. And Perry like bristles at this. He's like, you don't give me directions. <laughs> I love this stuff. Is, but it's so true to life. Again, I can tell you that happens all the time. I need this. I need this. And it's whoa, 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 whoa. Who's making the decisions here? I mean, that is classic. But it's 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 really I mean, I'm sure that's true in, in, in any kind of uh, job uh, environment. But. You know, having having knowledge of that world, it, it 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 is funny to see those little scenes that are actually true to life, whether they meant them to be or not. But the part that grabs me is that he says to him, "I'm going to look around more," and then he then the word comes in because Jimmy walks in and very excitedly, and he's be, he's showing the paper that that says that the organ grind you know comes came over the a teletype of some sort and that the organ grinder was dead, and he was and 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 he's insistent. That despite Perry's, you know, demeanor, that he look at this because he knows how important this is. Perry does look at it, reads it, and then he says, "Well, Clark, you better get right over to the morgue." And it's like, "Well, wait a minute, is he on the train down in Baltimore and Philadelphia or wherever they were at this time?" It's like, "Get right over to the morgue." I mean, the Daily Planet's, you know, a great metropolitan newspaper. They had more than three reporters. Did they? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, they did because there is an episode I remember seeing that they showed other. They have on, on occasion shown the city where they yes. show other people walking around. So we know that others at least exist. Whether they do anything, I have no idea. We we did hit on that in one of the prior episodes, and I remarked about that. I think yeah. it was the case yeah. of the talkative dummy where you see Jimmy yeah. in the city room, and I was just like, yes. "Oh my god!" Like yes. there are other people who work here. Work at the Daily Planet. Yeah. Um, two quick two quick follow ups. One, I think one of the reasons why I love all of these Clark moments where you know he's giving Perry directions or when yeah. he's you yeah. know not taking the finger in his face all too seriously right. yeah. is that look, we love the Christopher Reeve iteration of the bumbling, yeah. mild mannered Clark, but it's like. This is not that. And I like no, it. Like, no, it's, it's so not. cool yeah. to see this, this kind of, of confident, capable Clark. Right. Uh, and that's what, I mean, that's what in, in, in the comics, that's where uh, I know that John Byrne um, had jumped off of is that his feeling was, you know, you, you can find a way to explain a way that, that, that Superman does not need to be bumbling because really who is going to make the connection. If you think about it, why would anybody think, and this gets, there's a later episode here in the first season, you know, the famous, the stolen costume, which by the way, if you're looking for people, I, 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 I put in my hat, my, I put my super hat back in the ring for that episode. It's such a great one. Um, but, um, but the, but the, 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 the point being is that, um, you know, you have, you have, um, damn it. I lost my train of thought. Um, since I started thinking about, well, about the John the, Byrne and no, nobody the, making oh, the right, connection. Okay, right, yeah. Let me get back. Okay. Right. So anyway, you go back to Byrne and he, he wrote about the fact or, or spoke about the fact that he wanted his Clark Kent to be more like George Reeves, that confident, you know, you know, take charge, does, always, know, always, always walks up to the line, but knows when to back off when he thinks if he's overdoing it and it would then somehow make him think anybody would think that he was Superman. But he made, his Clark Kent is not a milksop. His Clark Kent is very capable and sometimes really aggressive, as we see in an upcoming scene. Yes, very much so. And then the other thing I was just going to say, going back to the expense reports and everything, that's one thing, and I've said this before, but I'm always so struck in watching the, this show in particular, um, and maybe even when we get to Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, but they dealt with some budget issues uh, like the, within the context of the show. Um, 
but uh, but here it's like so many instances where the paper is sending two to three reporters. They're flying them. They're putting them up in multiple hotel mm-hmm. rooms. I just, I'm always thinking like, you know, it's such a far cry from you know what what you would see today. I think in most yeah. instances. Uh, so just just kind of funny to to, to think of that. Yep. Uh, so. Uh, after this, we get a quick scene uh, back in Harold Crane's office where Max comes in and tells him Joe, uh, I guess the guy on the train, got the locket. So just a quick scene right. uh, between them there. Uh, then we go back to the planet, Perry's office, a scene that you know we've already uh, discussed for the most part where Clark confirms this was our organ grinder, right? right. Uh, and he has the hunch to find the monkey. And uh, again, Perry is not on board with this, but does allow Clark to put the message out there. Was there anything else about that scene that we hadn't hit on yet? No, I think we pretty much, yeah. All right, cool. Uh, back to uh, Harold Crane and Max. They take, they get, the, they have the locket now. They take the microfilm out of it. Uh, they hear the news blast about the monkey, uh, and we, get, you know, these, <laughs> these two. Max explains how the monkey, uh, the monkey got away when he was offing the, the organ grinder. And as Max says, like he couldn't go chasing Who after was, a monkey. By the way, the, the, I'm sorry, the, I'm sorry to talk over you. No, no. Let's point out also that in the teletype, it actually says that he was stabbed in the heart. That's how they gave a cause of death. And it's brutal. He stabbed him in the heart. Damn. I know. That's cold. You know, given the way the rest of this episode went, the way it started with a whipping scene, I'm shocked know, that we actually yeah. didn't see the stabbing. Yeah, right. Seriously. They figured, all right, we'll give the whole, we'll get the kids a break. Well, <laughs> <laughs> like, one per episode. But yeah, you know, even if it's off screen, it's like it's, you know, mo- yeah. multiple deaths. Multiple yeah. deaths and acts mm-hmm. of violence in this episode. Yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah. Uh, but anyway, so they're, you know, now Max is off to, to try to get the monkey. And then we get back to Perry's office and uh, the scene that clearly is a highlight for both of us where, well, first there's another funny bit where, where Perry's on the phone and, and he, after he gets done, he says to Clark, he's like, uh, those fellows must think Superman works for the Daily Planet. Like it was the right, government yeah. calling, you know, to get in touch with Superman. But, but yeah. Clark's reaction was great. He was just like, Yeah, what? he's like, what? <laughs> His, the, the performance choice, it was just so, like, it's, yeah. oh man, just these little yeah. touches just <laughs> add so much color to it. It, it was, it was fantastic. <laughs> Uh, but then Jim, you know, Jim calls, uh, you know, because Clark was looking for Jimmy. He wanted him to basically man the hotline, right, for tips about the monkey. But as they're yeah, having this yeah. discussion, Jim calls looking for Clark to tell him uh, that he has a lead on the monkey. And you just, Clark's frustration and patience just, just, just mounts. Builds. He starts shouting at him. And it is, it's funny to watch. It's really funny to watch him just loot. Like, he's so impatient. He's like, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's, well, because <laughs> well, Jim is really setting the table here. He's yeah, like, he's explaining. explaining himself. He's actually giving him salient information. But Clark is like, cut to the chase. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. Like in, 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 in Jim's defense, you know, he's explaining how he got this tip. He's the fact that it's in the suit. You know, the monkey's in the Superman costume. Like he's, you know, trying to relay the information by identify the correct. Mo- but Clark, right. Clark, Clark is just like monkey. Where's the monkey? <laughs> Where? Where are you? Where? Where? Now, in fairness to Clark. Okay, wait, no, 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 and Clark doesn't it one, for one second say to himself or anybody, and nobody references the fact that it was Clark who put the target on the monkey's back by having this be a public announcement to begin with. Because now you're telling the guys who are who, who might be after the monkey that the good guys are after the monkey because they think something's up with the monkey. So all it does is tell the bad guys, we better get that monkey. <laughs> 
Yeah. They weren't thinking about the monkey until the broadcast. (laughs) Because rationally, why would you? Well, Harold Crane seemed to think that the monkey, that Max killed the monkey too. (laughs) (laughs) No witnesses. I know. (laughs) (laughs) What's funny too is that, I mean, Max... Max is surprisingly honest, right? Because Max could have been yeah. like, nah, I killed the monkey. Yeah, I kind of threw him in the river. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I kind of yeah, I twisted his neck. I did something horrible. And that could have been the end of it. But instead, right. no. he's got to go hit the streets of Metropolis again to try to find Oh, he got away. Uh, now, in fairness to Clark, though, I mean, ha- you know, how right. many monkeys are roaming the streets of Metropolis, like especially in a Superman yeah. costume? So he's probably like, I don't yeah. need all this backstory. But, <laughs> you know, there's a, I don't, I, maybe it's the Night of Terror episode. I will, I'll remember when we get there. But uh, or I'll be reminded. But Clark has a similar moment of impatience with Ms. Bacharach, and I think mm. it's that episode where there's that message that has like flew off the desk, and right. he's just so impatient. And yeah. uh, it's you know it's it's comical. It's really yeah. funny. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, after this phone call, uh, Jimmy tries to get the monkey. He sees Max carrying the monkey on the street. They get into it. Max knocks him out and throws him over his shoulder. Takes you know carries him away. Max is strong. I mean, jeez. Yeah. You, can, you know, I mean, Jimmy's a, Jimmy's not a big guy, but he's a full grown man. He probably was at least 135 pounds, 150 pounds, maybe throw him over his shoulder like that and walk away. It was like, damn, that's that was not an easy and he did it in one take. Now, you saw his knees buckle slightly. I mean, I know you're the you're the you're the the, the guy who lifts weights and stuff, but I watched it and he's and it, but he did it and he walked right around the court. He probably just then passed out as soon as he was at a camera shot. But nevertheless, it's like, damn, that's that's impressive. That's impressive. Look, I've never carried a, a full grown man over my shoulders like that. So right. yeah, and I like the fireman's carry. No, I was I was struck right. by that. I was like, oh, yeah. right on. You know. Yeah. Again, another instance where it would have been really easy to just show him knocking him out and then like starting to drag him and then you cut away or something right. like that. But they actually, yeah, no, they go they go all in. Yeah. Although I don't like how how Peppy got a little rough, rough manhandled a little bit during the scuffle. Yeah. And it also happened to be the same four or five kids that we saw at the beginning of the episode too, <laughs> because I know I recognize the really excitable girl because once she starts running toward the camera, she she breaks into a big grin. She basically breaks character. She's running off. So I don't know who that, I don't know who, who little, little girl, little monkey girl was. I don't know where she is today, but thank you little monkey girl for adding a little bit of element of, of, of humor uh, unintentionally to this, to this wonderful broadcast yeah she really made an impression that's for sure she definitely did yes so clark and perry show up clark has clark was able to get a hold of the monkey and you know puts his hunch you know to 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 uh, to effect here right and hands the piece of paper uh to the monkey and then watches the monkey climb up um you know you have to imagine perhaps he could have used uh, you know his enhanced senses to track but it's it's fine you know it, it it you know close that loop of why he, why right. he was so interested in, uh, right. in finding the monkey. Right. Proving that he was right. Even though again, <clears throat> a lot of leaps of logic, but that's all I'll say about that now. I know, but it is, I do, I, you know, I wasn't thinking about that so much heading into this, but it is true. I mean, I, that is a big, <laughs> like, it's a big leap to think that the monkey played the role that yeah. it did. The, yeah, you know, the exactly. organ grinder is one thing. Like he had this message. Right, sure. Like, that's yeah. the thing. I think the natural inference after, you know, Clark had enough details is that, you know, these messages are in that fortune box, right? Yeah, right. That, that's probably. And they're coming right. by and taking it that way. The idea right. that the monkey would play such a critical part 
right. in this process. That was right. that was a leap, but you know, yeah. hey, we we go. Along hey, it paid there. off though. You know, sometimes a hunch just pays off. Yeah. So Clark changes to Superman and and busts in right as once again the monkey oh. is about to get it. Yeah. Yeah. The Max fires on the monkey. That's a, why would you do that? What, what, why would you, why, why do that to the monkey? That's just not, and Superman, and it was one of the best played and executed special effects moments on the show <clears throat> because when he does swing in and land and the gun goes off and it bounces off his chest, that actually is underrated, particularly for 1951. That's really good stunt work really good effects work. And, and, and this show never gets enough credit for that sort of thing. Cause you're people always think about the flying and how, you know, flying is obviously it's, it's all rigged up and whatever, but the other elements like that, that was a great scene really well, you know, really, really well executed. Oh, I, I agree. Totally. Uh, very effective. Uh, great to see him knocking them, knocking those two guys together, taking them yeah. out, uh, rescuing Jim, uh, yeah. And then our little button at the end of, of the scene after Superman assures Jimmy that Lois and Maria are okay, which I feel like was more of a reminder to the audience. So it was just yeah, like, yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. So they, to tie off that yeah. uh, plot thread. Uh, and yeah. then we end on the monkey uh, once again eating a banana. Eating a banana because, you know, really, that really should have been the whole episode. Yeah. 25 minutes of the monkey eating a banana would have been enough for me. Everything else is gravy, but just that monkey and that banana – and, and I have to say that when Superman was fighting both of them, I thought to myself, oh, are we going to get a head clock out of this? And sure enough, we do. I'm like, boom, the two coconuts go together. That's Superman. That's golden age Superman. And, uh, and then, yeah, then we get, we get the happy monkey at the end with his, with his, uh, with his banana with, uh, uh, and no longer on, under threat. Yeah. And you wonder what so will become of the monkey. I assume that he goes to the Fortress of Solitude and, and uh, he renames him Beppo. There you go. You know, Beppo the super monkey. There you go. Because this one is peppy. So, you know, it's not that far. I know. Yeah. I got to tell you, this, I, I really enjoyed my viewing of this. And I, I particularly had a lot of fun with this conversation. So <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> went all, I, I tell you, man, I didn't expect it to go down this road, but I'm glad it did. Now, this was so. Now, the last thing that we do on these episodes is, is we rate it. I've, I've devised a, a system based on a, a one to five fedoras. So how many fedoras like would you give this episode? Or actually, actually, it should be jaunty angled fedora. Yes. Because that's my wife is always pointing. In fact, when she, I was watching it again this afternoon and Clark walked in and she, she, you know, she like walked in the room. She says, oh, was his, was his fedora at a jaunty angle? Because it's always at a jaunty angle. So how many jaunty angled fedoras do I give this episode? I would say it is, if I'm grading it, you know, it's, I, I always grade it on the curve. Um, because am I comparing it to the series overall? Am I comparing it to a first season episode? Am I comparing it to the black and white years? So I think for sheer entertainment value, uh, it is a, it is definitely in the four range, um, with elements of five thrown in there, um, on the whole, because of some of the inherent silliness and some of the, you know, kind of the downside of those parts that we're, that we're laughing about. I would go a little bit lower. So let's, let's, let's round it at four and say, I mean, it's, 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 it's a black and white episode. So it almost means it's almost definitely going to be superior than a color episode. Although I, I love the color episodes too. It's just such a different tone. So that's my extremely long winded way of getting to four. Okay. Right on. Now I, I, uh, I appreciate all of that. I'm going to go three 
And I I can see that too. Yeah. And I, you know, for anyone who's been listening to these episodes and like, wow, he's like kind of hard on, on the grading. I, you know, I consider three to be a good score. I really enjoyed (laughs) this episode. The thing that I keep coming back to, and I've said this when I give my ratings, is just like, I have in my head what I know, like what I know my fives are and what I know, like a lot of my fours are, you know, so it's, it's more in the context of that. Um, but this was definitely like, this was a very, very entertaining, enjoyable episode. So I give this a very, very solid, respectable three. Three. Yeah, I can I can't argue with any of that. Uh, it, it's a perfectly valid position, and I think I'm thinking of it as a four more because of the time that I, I've had such a great time talking about it that it's elevated it in my mind yeah. more than if you had just asked me, say, "Hey, what'd you think?" I was like, "Oh, it's a three. But now, the, but now I see all of the 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 unintentional and intentional comedic value of the episode that that gives uh, gives it a little bonus for me. Right on. You know, the last thing, and I'll let you go and I'll let our audience go, but, you know, going back to this idea of, of Perry as the mayor, you know, and I know we'll, right. we'll, when we get to that episode, we'll have more to say, but, you know, throughout the series, you really do see the the position of prominence that Perry and the planet occupy in the city and, and the yes. respect that so many people give his reporters. And I think it's easy to just attribute that to respect for, for journalists and especially at that yes. time. So I don't think you need the mayor angle, but I don't know, like kind of having that in the back of my head, it's like that might also help account for why Perry is as respected as like he's had this history. Right. Exactly. You know? Could be. So we'll see. But just a very interesting uh, side note to that character. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dan, thank you so much, man. This was fun. Thank you for having me. I had a blast. Uh, I hope that everyone will check out 13thdimension.com. A uh, ton of great uh, articles and interviews. Uh, I really hope people will uh, will visit the site. Please, I hope, you know, it would be, as I always say, um, when I, when I go on podcasts, if you like what we're talking about here, then uh, there, it's a very good chance that you will find something fun to read over at 13th Dimension, at least that's what we endeavor to do. So stop on by. Yes. And I always appreciate uh, the opportunities you've given me to write for the site. So thank you. Oh yeah, Absolutely. And uh, thank you for being on this show. And I've, you know, I've mentioned this previously, but just as a reminder for folks, Dan was on a very recent episode of Digging for Kryptonite, my other Superman show uh, that aired just before I launched this podcast. We talked about Superman and the Secret Planet the unproduced uh, screenplay uh, that would have been a, a, a George Reeves Superman movie. Uh, so we had a great conversation about Superman and the Secret Planet. If anyone missed that on Digging for Kryptonite, I hope they'll check it out. All right. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, audience. We will be back here in two weeks with Season 1, Episode 6, Adventures Await. Support the show and receive exclusive additional content, including my DC Movie Rewatch podcast, at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. Thank you to all patrons for enabling me to produce this show. Also, be sure to explore the other shows within the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, which is home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, all hosted by yours truly. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Visit flatsquirrelproductions.com for more. Thank you all.